Hello and welcome back to Studying Granada, a bi-weekly podcast where I, Mike Knoll, a fan but not expert of the Sherlock Holmes series, has hoodwinked my friend Jackson Eflin into watching the 1980 Sherlock Holmes TV series, and we read the stories and we talk about it. Uh, hi, I'm Jackson. I'm a novice, initiate... Tenderfoot? Tenderfoot, yeah. The game is a tenderfoot? Is it? I don't think it is. We're joined this week by special guest, co-host of Gratuitous Pausing, Alex Greyhawk. Alex, welcome to, do we ever, like, Baker Street? What do we... Welcome to uh, a rainy England in July, <laughs> apparently. Yeah, sorry if the audio is terrible quality this time around. It is raining and it's not going to stop, and we have a somewhat limited window for recording this episode, so enjoy... Ambiance. Ambiance, <laughs> yes. There is nothing wrong with good English rain! By the way, I'm Alex. Howdy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this week we watched the Abbey Grange, Alex... We've asked guests before, what is your experience with Sherlock Holmes? Um, I have never read any of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's original works. I have consumed a lot of uh, reinterpretations of those works. Uh, I've seen the Robert Downey Jr. films. I've seen a little bit of the BBC series. Mm -hmm. And I've seen a few seasons of Elementary as well. A few cartoons here and there. Uh, Sherlock Holmes in the 20th century? Yes. (laughs) With Cyborg (laughs) Robot Watson? Yes. (laughs) It's excellent. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Bill and Ted level. Like, excellent. Yeah. It is definitely in need of, like, a gritty modern reboot on the CW. Oh, God. (laughs) Honestly, I think MTV would do a better job with that one. Yes. No, it has to be CW. (laughs) Everyone needs to be sexy, even the robots. Even Mrs. Hudson, I mean, Hudson. especially the robots. somehow the Baker Shooter regulars are sexy too. Like it's like a bunch of lacrosse players. Okay, but hear me out, Jackson. Wentworth Miller is Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Oh, mm. Captain Cold. Hmm. Hmm. Intriguing. You might also know him from Prison Break, the other, mm-hmm. the place where, pe- where people actually know him from, who are not the two of us. Speaking of Wentworth Miller, let's jump into the Abbey Grange. Great what segue. Of, yeah, one of our famous segues. <laughs> Inspector Hopkins, puzzled to know why and by whom Sir Eustace Brackenstall has been murdered, asked for Holmes' assistance. But when the detective arrives at the Abbey... Are you okay? Puzzled to know by whom and why he was murdered. Puzzled. It's like me wondering why the bus was late today. (laughs) Better ask Sherlock Holmes. I don't know. It's also just the structure of that sentence is so tortured. Mm -hmm. Welcome to a studying granada. Um... More or less tortured than my segue. <laughs> Definitely more tortured. Like, this just got out of Guantanamo. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh. <laughs> I hope it's... you're okay when we bring politics onto the podcast. Oh, actually, while we're here, um... Hey, Guantanamo! <laughs> <laughs> Now's a good enough time as I need to bring in a light trigger warning for this episode. There's some light spousal abuse. Mostly it's reference. There's one instance. This would be a time to turn it off if that's not something you're jazzed about. Yeah. Anyway. Inspector Hopkins, puzzled to know why and by whom Sir Eustace Brackenstall has been murdered, asks for Holmes' assistance. But when the detective arrives at the Abbey Grange, Hopkins apologizes, saying he is disturbing for nothing since Lady Mary's evidence proves the Randall gang guilty. Mary claims the criminals have struck and tied her up, then have murdered Sir Eustace, who went to her rescue. Her story, though confirmed by her maid Teresa, doesn't convince Holmes, haunted by the three glasses the burglars are supposed to have drunk some port in. (laughs) Haunted. Tonight you shall be haunted by three glasses. Usually when it's three glasses, I'm haunted the next morning. Yeah. <laughs> the hangover joke. Is... Great. <laughs> oh, cut it. No, it's staying. You have to live with that. 
So, Alex, right off the bat, I know what the murder you wanted to talk about, the blood. Oh, my God. It is the worst blood effects I have ever seen. It looks like melted wax. It probably was. <laughs> Both too runny and also too solid. I wonder if it was a budget thing of we have this old man or we have all these props. We have horses and buggies and all costumes and they had to cut corners somewhere and even in the 80s it was like okay but this is what we've got then. Like, it's just so frustrating because all the close-up shots of the victim they're like gruesome and the way the camera is cutting it makes it very visceral. I'm like oh wow I was not expecting this much gore in a Sherlock's home thing and then they zoom out a bit and you see this wax blood splatter right next to the victim's head and I'm just like oh okay it, it's gone. Yeah if they stuck with the quick cutting that would have actually made it really cool they like never properly showed the body apart from like those like quick shots that would have been like really eerie and I would have been into it but now we kind of get this fourth sequel to a hammer horror film kind of thing. The Bride of the Son of Crackle's Landlord. It's like someone painted three walls of a room and then it pans to the fourth <laughs> wall. It's <laughs> just like, oh, it's just completely exposed drywall. Blood aside, sorry, blood <laughs> aside, this was like the most gruesome body we've really had, I don't think. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we've had bodies before, but it's usually just been like, yes, he was struck on the back of the head and died, mm. and that's it. And there's like a normal body. Although we kind of had, in the resident patient, there was the hanging but he was, like, covered in a sheet the whole time. There's a burning corpse in the word builder, but it's a skeleton, so it's not really that... Yeah. that Thank God he was wearing his trousers. Thank God he was wearing his trousers, uh, yes. Let's see what else. Yeah, you don't want to see his boner. Why did I have you on as a guest? <laughs> Mike invited me. <laughs> ah, there we go. Tom Watson, the game is afoot. Is this the first of uh, the games afoot we've had? I'm not sure. That wasn't in the story. That's a thing that they changed. And I think we'll get into the changes from the story to the screen later, I think, yeah. as they accumulate. Alex, is there anything from this first section that you wanted to touch on that you can think <clears throat> of? Basically from the beginning through the end of Mary telling her series of events. I struggled with the camera work a little bit during them interviewing Mary. Mm -hmm. So with a mystery narrative, you're usually supposed to highlight the important bits for your audience sure. in some way. But I wasn't sure whether they were highlighting via the camera is on Mary and close up or whether they are highlighting the clues when the camera is on Sherlock and he has a very, you mm -hmm. know, tense thinking face and you see his very subtle facial movements. We've seen camera work kind of like this before and for me I think it's the director not wanting to just set the camera on the person talking because it is one person talking for a while explaining things and Holmes will ask questions and talk for a bit and then that person talks again for a while I'm like you're not wrong yeah I'm just my take is that they're not necessarily highlighting stuff they're just trying not to set one camera on the client if you will or the yeah. victim for six plus minutes straight. yeah I can understand that I think a better way to do it would have been to intersperse her telling of events with the flashback sequences mm -hmm. that we got as opposed to kind of all of one and then all of the other. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing I liked this time watching it with the flashbacks is the flashback stops when the truth does. Like they show everything that she did leading up to her saying, oh, it was an old, older man and he hit me and I had the candle. As soon as she starts telling the lie, the flashback stops. Mm -hmm. And we see a couple clips of... Like her being tied up, like waking up, having been tied up. I guess waking up, in quotes. That's a thing that happened. She just lied about the context. Like the mm -hmm. we never see the gang 
and flashback because that didn't happen. Right. And I thought that was an interesting, like, I never noticed that before. And it's maybe not noticeable unless you know the twist. Which interacts with some really interesting stuff about the idea that the camera can only show the truth. That was, like, a big part of film theory for the, like, first Mm -hmm. half century of, like, movies being a thing before people realized uh... Only the camera knows the absolute truth. Yes. It's a little final problem joke. Do you even listen to the show, Jackson? Yes, but it's been a hot minute. While returning to London, Holmes suddenly decides to turn back, for the truth has dawned upon him. The dregs found in the third glass exclusively betray a performance from Mary and Teresa to charge the Randall with the... (laughs) Betray the Randall, Randall, that classic Sherlock Holmes villain. Didn't Beowulf fight him? Oh, God, yeah. No, that was Randall's mom. Uh, betray a performance from Mary and Teresa to charge the Randall with the murder and shield the real culprit. Near Abbey Grange, Holmes unearths a broken stell dedicated to Fudge. <laughs> oh, Fudge. <laughs> to Fudge, Lady Brackenstall's dog, and gathers that Sir Eustace butchered the innocent pet and is responsible for Mary's marks of blows, though she pretends he was a good husband. She refuses to tell Holmes what exactly happened during the fateful night, so the detective inquires at the shipping company which brought her to England and learns that she traveled on the ship whose first officer was Jack Crocker. Uh, so yeah, Alex, I, you and I watched this one together. The fact that Holmes jumps down into this, not s- swamp, but it's almost... Like a creek. Yeah, like a little creek by the house, and just pulls out the tombstone that just says... Fudge. <laughs> and then underneath his requiescat in pace. <laughs> and the juxtaposition of those two things. Who thought that was a good idea? I, I don't like, know. You could, have had, like, you could have had dates. You could have just had like an RIP. Like even rest in peace in English would have been better than going to the Latin. <laughs> Here's the thing. That dog was never named in the story. <laughs> oh, wow. They could have chosen anything. Yeah, yeah. They reference the dog dying or being killed in the story. Mm-hmm. They do not tell you that dog's name. No. So you Trevor Bowen, this. who wrote this episode, came up with the name Fudge. <laughs> And potentially adding Requiat and I don't know. Yeah, added that just <laughs> themselves. Like that was a complete fabrication for this the show. That's impressively bad. <laughs> yeah. Also, like why Fudge? My guess is that he or someone he knew had a dog named Fudge. I'll give that to you, but also that means that he's like Hey, neighbor, in the story I wrote, your dog is killed horribly and buried in a swamp. I don't know. Maybe Their gravestone desiccated. Maybe he didn't like that person. That's fair. That could be. That could have been some real <laughs> passive aggressive. Like, Fudge is the next door neighbor's dog who barks too much. Oh, wow, yeah. What's your neighbor's dog's name? Just put the address. That's the dog's name. Is that your neighbor's address? <laughs> the story ends at Baker Street. Holmes knows Crocker has killed Brackenstall, but he is set on taking time to mull the case over. Summoned by a telegram from Holmes, a sailor confesses he loves Mary, abused by her alcoholic and violent husband, and used to meet her secretly. But the last time, Brackenstall burst in and rushed at his disarmed rival. A fight to the death ensued, and Crocker killed his attacker. To clear Mary of suspicion, he made up with Teresa a story incriminating the Randall. Holmes and Watson, convinced that Crocker's morals are beyond reproaches, (laughs) proclaim him not guilty and free to go. 
a happy future opens before Crocker and Mary. I think they keep meaning to put the Randalls, because it's the Randall gang. Yeah. But they just kept missing that apostrophe S, so it's just the Randall. I mean, you could have also gone with the Vandal who broke into their home. Like, that also makes sense, but... uh. I love and hate these terrible (laughs) synopses. It's a fascinating interaction with the English language. Maybe one day we'll find the person who writes these and ask them on to guest. Gods, yes, please. For a bonus episode just about the synopses. Jackson, you wanted to talk about Captain Crocker. Oh, yeah. Um, I liked him a lot as a character. He was fun to me. Like, there's a bit where he talks about his time meeting Mary and like how he fell for her and uh, says... Uh, we were never engaged. When we parted, she was a free woman. But I could never again be a free man. Which, I love that line. Mm-hmm. That's it's- kind of like um, Crooked Man. You liked the... She was the woman I loved and the finest girl that ever had the breath of life between our lips. Yeah. yeah, I'll put that quote in for there, but yeah. And like, and like later after he talks, after it's come out that he did the killing, he says, um, "When I knew that Josephine was dead and she was free of him, I reckon I'd done the best night's work of my life. I still do, even if I swing for it." Like, yeah. dang! There are a lot of great lines in this one. There are some that don't land, I think, as well as they want them to. Fudge. Uh, <laughs> yes, I'll put in the quote of Jeremy <laughs> Brett because, like, much like energies. That's like grab his fudge. Fudge. Um, I wrote down a few lines. This one's from the story, but and they lightly do it in the, the show, but I had rather play tricks with the law of England than with my own conscience was a good one. They were home asked if the person who was presumed to have done the hitting with the poker The murderer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um Do you have an English degree? I left it at home, I'm house sitting right now. <laughs> Did you write the synopsis? <laughs> <laughs> the jig is up. <laughs> the game is afoot. <laughs> anyway, um, Holmes uh, says, uh, like, was he a powerful man? Uh, half his trade is power. And he like looks at the bent uh, fire poker and says, he's left his trademark. Violence, I think. His trade is violence. Yeah. I'll put the, I mean, I'll put the quote in. Sure, so yeah. You keep saying <clears> that you don't have to, even this is my edit, I think. You'll put the quote in. <laughs> <laughs> a powerful man, the Zelda Randall. Half his trade is violence, sir. Eh? He certainly left his trademark. Yeah, I'm, and that's a good bit. It's like mm-hmm. a very wry joke from Holmes, and I appreciate that. I guess we can talk about this then, because we're here with Crocker. Holmes lets him get away yeah. with murder. Yeah. And I mean, that's a loaded term, I suppose. I've mentioned this before many times, as, as like, they bend the law and sometimes break the law. And in the Blue Carbuncle, when he let the hotel manager or butler or whatever go... Send him to jail now, you make him a jailbird for life. And I keep bringing up, like, yeah, Holmes sometimes lets people get away with murder. And so this is our first instance of that where Mm. a guy killed another guy and it was decided that probably this is fine. And I don't mean like a, this is fine kind of way. Like, yeah, this is probably fine, actually. Yeah. Yeah, and before Holmes decides what to do, he specifically tests him to see what the content of his character is. Jackson will put the quote in here. (laughs) Calm yourself, Captain. I was only testing you. (laughs) There's a lot of quotes this episode. I mean, you don't have to put them all in. (laughs) But I like that aspect of this episode, Mm -hmm. and I think the way they portray it, it does a really great job of endearing you to Captain Crocker. Mm -hmm. It's not, oh, I'll kill him and then I can be with Mary, or whatever. Mm -hmm. It was very much defending 
Mary. Yeah. And his blood boiled because she was being mistreated. And there was absolutely no selfish measure in what he did. It was very much like, no, you are going to die now. In the show, they make it much more of a fight. And in the book, or in the story, I feel like it's more... I'm not going to lie, I skimmed through the last couple paragraphs of the story where Crocker outlines his take. So, But it, it just seemed much more like it was meant to be, he struck him and he died and less like Brackenstall beat the shit out of him with a cudgel for about <laughs> six minutes before he finally managed to get him with a poker. Right. And I can understand doing that. You're transitioning this to a visual medium and you, mm-hmm. you want to have that more visceral response to this violent act for self-defense. Mm-hmm. I also think it falls, as I, you and I talked to all about Alex, is the 50-minute problem of this is they needed to fill the quota of minutes. And so having... That fight go as long as they could was an interesting way of doing it instead of that weird interstitial scene where they come back to the Abbey Grange and we just see Watson standing in like the atrium out front and holds his way over here. He's like, Watson! And they just see Watson running to catch up and that's it. Like that was the yeah. whole scene that took like 30 seconds. Yeah, and then they're like in this cobblestone driveway <laughs> and then all of a sudden they're over by the bridge. Mm-hmm. Well, other episodes could have easily been like 30 minutes and been fine. I think if this had been 40 minutes, it would have been okay. Like, there's padding, but there's not too much There's padding. enough that it could probably pull 40 minutes. There's just not enough for 50 minutes. Yeah, yeah. But, like, watching three, and this is my first episode, but the padding didn't feel egregious. Like, I could see where it was, but it wasn't too bad. And, like, they did some interesting things with it. During the beginning, when they're on their way to Abbey Grange, there's a lot of interesting camera work going on. Some of it is good, some of it's not. Like, I enjoyed the pan over to the log in the pond Mm -hmm. that they set up later. Also, the, like, point of view shot from the Bucky driver is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Let's talk, you mentioned the log, and I know that Jack and I are the ones, we read the story. That brings up a, a thing I wanted to talk about, at least from the story, is Holmes's hint. In the story, he has Hopkins check for the silver in, like, under the log, and he shows up at Baker Street. He's like, how did you know? And Holmes's like, well, yeah, I, was, I figured it'd be a blind. like Because Crocker calls it a dodge, but same difference. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, what do you mean? And Holmes's like, well, it'd be a natural place to hide it, to come back for it later. Or something like that. And he's like, oh, of course, that makes way more sense than whatever the hell you were just talking about. Of course they're coming back later. And Holmes basically is one more time like, could have been a feint. Could have been a dodge. He's like, no, no, that, that's... And he leaves. And then when he meets with Crocker, he's like, I gave them a hint. If they don't follow it up, which I'm pretty sure they're not, then you're fine. But Holmes is like, I'll, I'll play judge and Watson can be the jury, but... I am going to give the police a chance. Like, here's a clue that I'm giving you, and if you follow it and do a good job, you'll catch the guy, but I'm not going to help you more than that. In the story, Holmes makes it clear that he's a private citizen. He's not necessarily obliged to come yes. forth with what he knows, whereas uh, the policeman is, which is why Holmes is like, I'm not going to tell him everything because he, then he'd have to follow the law, yeah. even though the law is clearly not quite with justice here. Yeah, that uh, falls into, um, again, the blue carbuncle. I am not retained by the police to supply their deficiencies. I'll help with them, but I'm not going to do their whole job for them if I feel like I don't need to. So can we talk about the whole speedrun trial thing that happens? (sighs) It is a great responsibility that I take upon myself, but we will do it in due form of law. Crocker, you are the prisoner. Watson, you are a British jury. And I never met any man more eminently fitted to represent one. You have heard the evidence. Do you find the prisoner guilty or not guilty? No, not guilty. Vox Populi, Vox Dei. You are acquitted, Captain Crocker. 
Yeah, like, it it feels like that would have been a much better place to pad than all of the other scenes. Like, you could have stretched that out for a little bit longer. See, I disagree. I think the fact that it was so brisk is what made it endearing to me. Uh, Watson heard the whole story. Holmes set up this basically fake court, and he's like, what do you think, Watson? Oh, not guilty. Definitely. Like, immediately. And it was done. And I feel like that was more endearing than if they had padded it into this, like, Baker Street trial. Australia is a major part of this narrative plot. You didn't use the phrase kangaroo court. What are you doing? Trying to be better. (laughs) (laughs) Proceed. I don't know. I just wish that Watson got to pontificate a little bit more about Mm. the nature of what's going on as opposed to just like, oh yeah, not guilty. Continue what you're doing, Sherlock. Well, you bring up Watson getting more things to do and say, which Boy, leads, us, leads us to, we need a name for this segment, like the Hardwick Corner or something like that, because... Um, Hardwick Rising. No. 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 Um, so this is the second Watson, the first one David Burke left after season two. So this is our first season with Edward Hardwick, and there's... An apocryphal story that when he signed on, he said, I want more things to do and say. Give me some of Holmes's lines. And the, the first episode, uh, The Empty House, which we just covered, it's mainly at the very end, he just comes up with how it, like, Holmes is like, oh, how do you think that it happened? And then Watson gives the exact correct answer. And in this one, he openly, from the story, stole at least half of Holmes's, like, some of the times where he goes on for a few more than a few sentences, those are Holmes' lines that he just <laughs> got to say. And so, I just it's funny that you're like, I think he should have gotten a do a little bit more there when I was like, most of what he did was cribbed off of Holmes' lines. Yeah, and like, that's kind of the unfortunateness of the original yeah. works is like, it's it's all about Holmes, and, whereas a lot of adaptations really love the interplay between Watson mm-hmm. and Holmes and trying to strike the balance of like, being true to the original work, but adapting it to be more interesting for a modern well, audience. And what kills me, they were doing a good job in the first two seasons without give, giving Watson a huge amount of Holmes's lines. We have on here to talk about Holmes and Watson, but we haven't really had them being friends. We have the very end of the episode where they're drinking port. Which I really like, actually. We'll get to that sure. a bit. But we don't really have the friendship as focused as we used to. Which I get. They actually haven't been around each other as much, mm-hmm. presumably, so they probably haven't built up that, built up that chemistry yet. I hope that gets better over time. Mm-hmm. So the story ends with the kangaroo court thing that happens, but... Um, the episode tacks on a little bit where Watson's like, hey, you appointed yourself Judge Judy and Executioner. You just said Judge Judy. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you appointed yourself Judge Judy and Executioner. You know, you're right this time, but, you know, maybe that's not cool all the time. Just throwing it out there. I'm uneasy that you took upon yourself the duties of advocate and judge. You are too bound by forms, Watson. Forms are society yeah. It's a good bit, and it reminds me of why Watson's important, because we need someone who's, like, able to ground Sherlock and keep him from, like... You mean, like, actually ground him? Well, I, I guess, yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, Holmes, you can't go solve this mystery, you're grounded. <laughs> no, eat your peas. <laughs> your what? Your peas. Your peas? Yeah. Like, like the vegetable. vegetable thing. Oh, eat your... I thought you said your peas. <laughs> no, no, eat your peas. Yeah. I, I'm interested in, we can tie this into changes from page to screen, because the show did a weird thing where they tried to make Brackenstall secretly a bastard, where in the book, everyone was like, oh yeah, he drank and was sadistic. Like they say in the story, he drenched the dog in petrol and set it on fire. I think they was trying to like help with a misdirect, which 
Yeah, and that's that was my take yeah. as well. We have Mary's uh, interview at the very beginning. It's like, no doubt hear a rumor of it otherwise from idle tongues who will distort the truth of it. It would pain me to think of his memory tarnished in that way. I can also see that her trying to make it seem like, oh, I liked him. I wouldn't want to murder him. Exactly. That would be ridiculous. Yeah, yeah and that's, that's my take as well. It was just a lot of weird changes. They, they added the tombstone, obviously. They changed that Mary eventually got loose and raised the alarm. To, which I guess is unnecessary, but the way that they switched it was also unnecessary. It was an incidental thing that they changed to an equally incidental thing, which mm-hmm. is why it just stuck out to me so much. Yeah. Also, because Mary doesn't go off on her husband in the show, we lose the great line where she talks about how her husband is awful. It's a sacrilegious crime of villainy to hold such a marriage binding. Mary really, really has a lot of things to say in the story about Brackenstall. In the show, she's like, oh yes, he used to go hide in a room and drink, so I never had to see him drunk. And it's like, that is not the case. <laughs> and even at the end, Watson is in a very weird bit. It's like, oh, I had a, I had a question about your, your fake story. You described drunkenness so well. Well, I'm just, what's that about? And he's like, oh, my father was a drunk. And he's like, oh, that's what I thought. You told the story with such detail. I was sure it was true. Was like, You're a trained doctor. Like, you should be able to deal with this. <laughs> Maybe I'm asking too much of a doctor from, like, the late 1800s, but... I mean, I'm surprised you didn't out- offer her heroin. Like, <laughs> Fortunately, miss, there's a real doctor here who may help you. Would you like some heroin? At first, I thought that's what those marks were going to be. Like, oh, she's like a drug addict. That'd be an exciting thing. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. It would add layers of complication for her to be a drug addict and him also an addict and have that, like, interplay. I thought it was going to be vampires. (laughs) Then I was like, wait, no, no, no. I would know if it was vampires, but for a single second... Mike, you you made a mistake letting Jackson watch Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Every period piece is going to be maybe vampires for Jackson forever. (laughs) Admittedly, pale woman in nice house has two concentric circles on her arm about a mouth width apart. They weren't quite a mouse with the part. Very large mouse. Uh, There's one more change. We also get way more of a character from the guy who works for the shipping company. Yeah, I really liked him. Yeah. And I love that they used this because before we've had the thing at the beginning that Holmes and Watson are doing or talking about come back at the end as a bookend, like in The Dancing Man, how absurdly simple. And Holmes chiding Watson about his stories, and then at the end, he's reading him The Resident Patient, and Holmes thinks it's a great story. Mm-hmm. And we have this again, where Holmes does almost the exact same spiel about how you... I must admit, Watson, you do have some part of selection. Thank you. To turn so much of which I deplore about your narratives. Your fatal habit of looking at everything from the point of view of a story instead of as a scientific exercise has ruined what might have been an instructive and even classical series of demonstrations. And they're meeting with this guy who works for the shipping company, and the guy's like, I have you, Mr. Holmes. You are asking the whereabouts of a member of the crew of the Rock who has been seen very recently, but not on the ship. Mr. Viviani, your perspicacity astonishes me. I assure you, it is only through study of the good doctor's masterly exposition of your work that I now have any small capacity to reason. Where he like provides a you know reasonable deduction based on the evidence, and so it's kind of a like turning the tables on Holmes, and I like that. I love whenever he starts talking shit about the stories, and then at some point, other a bunch of other people like talk about how much they love them, and then he just has to, like 
roll his eyes because he can't go off on that person. He's trying to solve a mystery. <laughs> like, you know he comes back a week later. Then. Okay, now, remember when you talked about the stories? Here's why you're wrong. That's exactly what Sherlock would do. Say you're wrong or I'll get you convicted for murder. I'll book you for false arrest and wrongful imprisonment and murder! But yes, I did really enjoy... That was a place, like we talked about before, with, like, again, the Dancing Man, where they filled... The 50 minutes by taking bits of the story where Helen Cubitt's like, and then this happened, and showing us it happening. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that was in the story, it's like, yeah, we went and talked to this guy, and he told us that it was Jack Crocker. And they made that like a five minute scene. That was pretty fun and like mm -hmm. yeah. I didn't, useful. I didn't realize that was filler until I read the story, <laughs> which I was supposed to read before this, the episode. You were supposed to. <laughs> I just said it's a good idea to start reading the stories before, so then it's not. I watched 50 minutes of this. I don't want to read it. <laughs> um, all right. Well, do you have any small monographs? There are some really awfully framed shots in this. <laughs> like, there's a thing. There, at the beginning, Holmes is reading a letter. Uh -huh. And they just, like, they have it so the camera's over Holmes' shoulder. And you see the letter he's reading and then half of Watson's face. I'm just like, we don't need to see the letter. Like, it's fine. You could just sure. have Holmes reading or just Watson's reaction to it. That's a subtle hint to in next season when Watson becomes Two-Face. <laughs> but, like, we also had this other scene when they're, like, investigating the crime scene where the objects in the foreground are incredibly out of focus and we have them walking forward. <laughs> like, no, just, just cut the thing out of frame. <laughs> Unlike the... Person who loves mirrors, um, whoever did this camera work, I feel like was trying to be artsy and just wound up not. I mean, we got some mirror shots. I don't think it's the same person because there wasn't like there wasn't a whole hollow mirror sequence <laughs> where there didn't need to be. That has never actually happened. <laughs> oh, did you get that weird thing on the train where like zoom in on the first class and then it like flops to some other like the same shot from a different angle or something? Like from the other side of the window, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that was also a little weird. Yeah, like it definitely felt like before they introduced like the mystery of it all, like someone was just having fun with trying different camera angles, <laughs> and mm -hmm. was like, okay, back to serious business, and right. then it was pretty much gone for the rest of the episode. I really like the opening; it's a good comedy bit of Holmes just being like, "Hey, wake up, get your clothes on." <laughs> Mrs. Watson has knocked me out. God, there's a story where Holmes wakes up Watson because somebody's there to speak to them. It's very early, and basically, the, in the story, he says. I'm sorry to knock you up, but Mrs. Watson has knocked me up in turn, or something like that. It was just this whole use of the phrase knocked up. That... I think it was Mrs. Hudson. Mrs. Watson would not have knocked Did I say him. Watson? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I didn't. Mrs. Hudson has knocked me up. I mean, listen, we haven't finished the series. Who knows? I'm <laughs> sure someone has uh, taken that and run with it for fan fiction. There is a sort of fan fiction AU. Something Wyman was the writer, and it's set in a circus. And Holmes like is the guy who runs the circus. And the Watson character... And the Mrs. Hudson character do end up together, which is actually it's really good. I'll try to link it in the thing. It's called. A so I try not to just drop that name. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really have any monographs this week. Um, I guess that only leaves must clash. Yes. So there's a number of good contenders this week. Mr. Viviani, the owner of the shipping company, yeah, comes to mind. 
But he also has a lot of beard as well, so it's more like the, his facial hair is sort of like his uncle's work, as opposed to just having just one good mustache. Yeah. Part of it is also just how it fits with the rest of his outfit, like the very dark facial hair contrasts very well with his bright red vest. Yeah. Uh, there's Inspector Hopkins, who has a distinctly British mustache. Very much Colonel Moran's, but fuller. Yeah. And then, I'm vamping while I find this photo, we have the messenger who just has the uh, best beard. I mean... Picture, if you will, a old sea dog off the coast of Maine who has spent his entire life and all of his father and grandfather and great-grandfather's lives fishing off that coast as long as it's been there. It's that beard. Starting with this episode, we'll start tweeting the various contenders for the episodes as Mm. well. Probably after the episode comes out. So you'll be able to look these up on our Twitter at in underscore Granada. I'm voting for this messenger guy. I don't know what your thoughts are. Normally, I would disqualify him because he doesn't actually have a mustache, but it's a very good beard. Now, here's the thing. We call it must clash. It's not just mustaches. It's facial hair is the criteria. We've had a lot of mustaches because that's the style. Beards are acceptable. Hmm. I mean, Mr. Melos. Yeah, that's true. I don't think we need to limit ourselves to just mustaches unless it's really good. I think it's the best facial hair has always been. The criteria, and I think this guy's yeah got it. Yeah, I would definitely agree. Like while we were watching the episode, I'm like, oh, that guy, obvious standout, because the beard just comes out of nowhere. Oh yeah, it's great. It rises up from the depths. All right, well then the messenger moves on to face Colonel Moran, mm. our current season three champion, because he's the only person who's gone so far. Right. Let me get a picture of Colonel Moran up for you, Alex. That is a very good mustache, right? Yeah. I'm going to vote for The Messenger. If we look at it as a tournament, as it kind of is, because when we finish this, the whole run of the show, all of the season champions are going to face off for ultimate must clash. And I don't see Colonel Moran beating the people from before, but I think The Messenger has a chance at it. I get what you're saying, but I... But I'm wrong. I like Colonel Moran's mustache better because I feel like it works so well with his face. You don't. You don't think that. <laughs> I, I do. So I guess it comes down to Alex. Oh, wow. Putting me on the spot. I think for me, it's going to come down to 